Rebecca McCain with my co-host, Alan Winson. We call our podcast Bar Crawl Radio because when we started, we recorded in our Upper West Side Manhattan neighborhood bars and at bars around the world. But when COVID-19 hit, we turned to Zoom, which is where we are now. It is early spring, and when the weather turns warm, we will take our mics to Manhattan's open streets for outdoor recording and then, hopefully soon, back to our beloved bars to buy our guests drinks and have more interesting conversations. This country, my country, your country, is rife with examples of white Americans killing black Americans with the blessings of the police and the military. Let's look at some examples. 1920, the Oki Massacre in Florida, where 50 African Americans were killed because they were going to vote. 1921, Tulsa Massacre, destruction of a thriving African American black community in Oklahoma. 1923, Rosewood, Florida Massacre, the destruction of an African-American town. 1937, Memorial Day Massacre in Chicago, police killed 10 demonstrators. Examples abide into the second decade of this century. For instance, the 2015 massacre of black Americans in a Charleston church. Today, we are talking with J. Chester Johnson about his recent book, Damaged Heritage which looks deeply into the 1919 Elaine, Arkansas massacre when over 100 black Americans were murdered by white posses and soldiers of the U.S. military. Mr. Johnson was educated at Harvard and the University of Arkansas. He was a financial specialist who served as a deputy assistant secretary for the U.S. Treasury Department under Jimmy Carter. An essayist and poet, Chester Johnson, along with W.H. Auden, retranslated the Psalms for the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer. Welcome, J. Chester Johnson, to Bar Crawl Radio. Thank you. It's so, Very pleased to be here. Very it's it's so great, and we're so honored to have you uh, uh, with us today on Zoom, maybe in the future at a bar. Exactly. <laughs> Look forward to that. So um, rather than starting with the, the awful history of what happened in and around Elaine, Arkansas, in September and October of 1919, uh, let's begin by talking about what's been going on recently to memorialize and give notice to that horrific event. If I may, I'll probably, I should probably sort of put this under the heading of the story of the memorial. For more than 100 years, this event was largely kept under wraps. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. The local white community, which is, was largely agricultural and uh, with white planters controlling life within Phillips County, where the massacre occurred, and their desire was to keep things very quiet. Bear in mind that when the massacre occurred, Helena, Arkansas, which is the county seat of Phillips, was the sixth largest community in the state of Arkansas. Now it's, I mean, it's virtually a ghost town. Mm. But there was a desire to keep what had happened under wraps, not only because that was the prevailing 
let's say, motif of the time, blacks got blamed for everything. If there was a problem, then it was a black insurrection. And so that was the story that was out um, initially. Also, the police sent out flyers throughout the entire county telling African-American sharecroppers in particular to keep quiet about it. Stop talking about it. Just keep doing your work. And bear in mind, this was a, it was also, it happened along the Mississippi River Delta, a rural area. You have Memphis about 70 miles to the northeast. You have Little Rock about 100 miles to the west. There's really nothing close by in terms of media network and all of that. Bear in mind, I grew up a, one county removed from Phillips County, and I never heard a word about it. I, it was never in Arkansas history books. I mean, we all, you know, taking state history is a requirement. There was nothing about it. In 2008, I was asked by the Episcopal, National Episcopal Church to write what was called the Litany of Offense and Apology. It was when the Episcopal Church nationally apologized in a formal way for its role in transatlantic slavery and related evils. I started doing my research and I came across an event that was described by Ida B. Wells, who was this major African-American historian and anti-lynching advocate. And she had written a treatise called the Arkansas Race Riot. And I came across it. You know, why was it, why was it hidden for so long? Um, what had happened? What was its significance? And I began to do a lot more study about it. I wrote an article, a long article for a literary journal. People really started to talk more about it in current terms. I was given an award from the University of Arkansas in 2010. And part of that, of the reward arrangement, I had to spend about 10 to 15 hours being interviewed in the it's a, it's a university center for, called the Prior Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. So in the middle of it, I asked the interviewer, who was the associate director, now here is the, this entity, I don't mean to put it down, but here's an entity charged with Arkansas history. And I asked the question, did you know anything about the Elaine Race Massacre? And he said, no. And I said, do you think there's anyone here at the center that knows anything about it? And he said, no. And so I started describing what, what had happened. Well, the person, thank goodness, the person I was talking to was really, he was offended that he didn't know anything about it, that the center didn't know anything. And one of the first stops that the person from the University of Arkansas made in Phillips County was for the Solomons. And the Solomons, very prestigious family in that part of the, part of the state. And this person named David Solomon was actually a classmate of mine at Harvard. The person from the university started talking about the Elaine Massacre and, and in the Solomon family started talking about what they knew about it. And by the way, their family was involved in various ways. So David and I, David lives here in the city and uh, he and I started having lunch together and one thing led to another and then Trinity Church, St. Paul's Chapel did a big symposium on the ma massacre. We had coverage of that. Things started to snowball. The Solomon family agreed to do this memorial, to pay for the memorial, which was a major contribution. The media toured the centennial, 
with the centennial was September 2019. And I was interviewed by Associated Press. They put out the New York Times put out a piece. The Wall Street Journal put out a put out a piece. It was really uh, NPR did the national NPR did a thing on, on September the 29th, 2019. We had the dedication and that was covered local and beyond local. And you've seen in the book some of the pictures of the of the memorial. And it does what I think it, it, it should be doing. And that is putting to rest these rumors that it was a little skirmish here and there. There was a legal scholar that wrote a book in the 1980s, another book that came out in 2000 called Blood in Their Eyes. Major book came out in 2008, probably the major book so far called On the Lapse of Gods. So it just, uh, and the Times picked up that and had, had a graph that showed the Elaine Race Massacre by far the largest um, major event of, um, uh, of lynching and killing of blacks, certainly since the, um, since the Civil War. Uh, we talked earlier about attempts through the Arkansas legislature to honor the day through a National Day of Racial Healing in the state of Arkansas and the Elaine Remembrance Week through a bill, SB State Bill 674. Right. But you indicated as we were talking before the show that it's probably not going to happen. Not this year. I don't, I, you know, I would love for this to be, you know, for me to be wrong about this. And I, I mean, I put out Everett, I wrote testimony and sent it down for it to, and sent it to the committee, all of the members of the committee. Um, but this year has been, I'll put it this way, one political observer, uh, very astute political observer I, I know well, who lives in, in Little Rock, said, this legislature is not going to be happy until race, till race matters moves back, move back to the 1950s. And in part, you know, I mean, there's there was a let there was a bill that actually got passed where it made it illegal to teach race issues. Local schools would be penalized with withdrawal of 10 percent of their state aid it's no wonder that the that that these kind of things were swept under the rug i mean it's not i, I don't think it's not it, it's typical i think actually that that this kind of information was hidden not reported newspapers expunged from records i mean it, the same thing happened in tulsa yeah to have a law that you can't even teach no one's going to really. I don't think people are not. I don't think they're going to abide by it and all the rest. Because I mean, how do you how do you do that? And how what kind of monitoring are they going to be able to do about it? So, uh, but nonetheless, those are the kinds of initiatives um, that are being passed in the um, in the state this year. So I'm not optimistic, but we got it introduced, and we have a, a long list of people who are writing testimony for it and um and it's been and the covered state in the news papers have done pretty well in terms yeah. of covering issues they covered the state newspapers covered my book i mean i i before it happened i would have never given the kind of i i wouldn't give them credit necessarily for giving the kind of attention they gave to damaged heritage right um two uh, only one newspaper that cover, is a daily newspaper across the state. And they covered me 
with two big articles on the on the book, and then the other one had, uh, which is more of a, um, it's a periodical, it's called Arkansas Times, and they had a big article as well. So yeah. it, it's, you know, there there's some points of light, I'll put it that way, along the Let's go. Let's go back a little bit in, into um, the uh, other reason that you got involved with this, and that is because your family was involved with with the ma- massacre, and uh, led to your kind of obsession with with this and 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 looking right. into it. You wrote in Dam- *Damaged Heritages* uh, that you wanted to understand the actions of your maternal grandfather. Yeah, my maternal grandfather. Right, whose name was Lonnie. Tell right. us about Lonnie and tell us what he did. Uh, the Birch family um, were sort of pioneers in Arkansas history for southeast Arkansas anyway. And uh, they had a lot of land in, settled in Shea County, which is one county, is the county directly south of Phillips County. Uh, Lonnie wasn't into farming, so, but he, he had an economic interest in, and he went to work for the Missouri Pacific Railroad and in Deshea County. The largest town in Deshea County is McGee. And McGee was the hub for all of Southeast Arkansas from the Missouri Pacific Railroad. Um, and he was an engineer. Um, and he had um, seven children, and one of those was my mother. Lonnie, later in life, he was transferred to Little Rock, and he lived, his home was only about three three blocks from Little Rock Central. And when the integration of Little Rock Central occurred, it was, it affected everybody in the state of Arkansas. Arkansas just generally has been sort of a quiet, sleepy, no one knew what was happening in Arkansas. No one really cared about what was happening in Arkansas. Then national and international attention in September of 1957 just focused on this and it became a, a federal state issue between Eisenhower and Orville Faubus and they eventually Eisenhower sent in the 101st Airborne Division and they forced uh, integration of the Rock Central. Well, my mother and I used to drive to Little Rock from Monticello where we had, we had lived uh, since I was like five years old. And so this topic of Little Rock Central um, uh, and integration and race relations became uh, almost a, a constant discussion point for, I was 13, but I was really interested in all this. At one point during uh, those drives, 100 miles back and forth, and we did it almost every weekend for a while, my mother told me about this event, and she called it a well-known race riot. Now, picking up what I had said about Ida B. Wells, she called it the Arkansas race riot. So, I mean, it was a sort of term that floated around. And she told me about the topography of the land and uh, how what Lonnie told them about it. Now, Lonnie was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. He never told them anything about the operations of the Ku Klux Klan. But 
he, for some reason, told a lot about this massacre, apparently. And so my mother described it in some detail, and she called it race riot. Over time, I was able to make the connection as when after I discovered the Ida B. Wells treatise, I began to refer back to what my mother told me about. And I did research and I found out that there had been lynchings and burnings of African-Americans alive after World War One in southeast Arkansas, but none, none that where you had large numbers of African-Americans perishing like that. So I began to make the connection. And particularly, it became very clear what had happened because um, the Missouri Pacific Railroad had been a, a major force in this massacre. In fact, the first white killed in the massacre was a security officer of uh, of the Missouri Pacific Railroad. A sidebar story of all this is that my father died when I was one, and my mother didn't do particularly well for a few years. And so I lived with Lonnie and Hattie Birch, my maternal grandparents. And Lonnie had just retired from Missouri Pacific Railroad, and I became his 24-hour-a-day caretaker. And, um, and we were very close. I mean, I really adored him, and he adored me. And uh, but Lonnie and I were were really very close. And um, my brother was spending a lot more of his time with the paternal part of the family. I spent time with the maternal. And then, when I was about when I was five, my mother brought us all together in another small town in southeast Arkansas, about 25 miles west of McGee in the Monticello. And Lonnie died about. I don't know, three to six months after, uh, after we were separated. And you, were, you were raised by this beloved grandfather who you look up to and adored. And then later on, you found out that he was not quite what you thought he was and you were torn. This is a big theme in Damaged Heritage. You actually yeah, wrote, a, you wrote a letter to him uh, yeah. after he was dead in trying to get this, bring this together in your mind. And at one point, you... Um, your grandfather died, and you went to live with your mother in Monticello. Uh, right. And, and uh, you lived right on the edge between the white part of the town and the black part of the town. I think you were right there on that line. That must have been an important part of your socialization, of who, why you are who you are today. Could you talk about that period in your life? You know, it's hard for me to... Because there's really not... There hasn't been a lot of literature on what kind you know what that does to somebody but i lived on shelton street and it ran parallel to jackson street which was right behind our house and that's where that was a, a large enclave of african-americans my brother who was seven years older he had a lot of people to play with on shelton street there but for some reason i didn't and so i ended up playing a lot by myself the backyard was this big field, and I noticed um, a lot of black children, young boys playing out there, and I gradually made my way out there, and they gradually made their way toward me, and we became friends, and we played, you know, this was right, this was before I started school, like right soon after I had left, left Little Rock and moved to Monticello. 
over time, we continued to play together and um, we'd have baseball games and that sort of thing. And, and um, but then the institutional, the institutionalization of segregation separated us over time. And um, could we, you could you remember one instance that um, maybe you didn't realize it then, but you realize it now was a a fomenting point that that broke you from from that friendship. Going to the white school, and it was sort of an incremental process because I went into the second grade. We we would attend from early in the morning till after three o'clock, and by that time, um, I had made a few white friends, and white friends generally had lived close. I mean, this W.C. Whaley Elementary School was on Main Street. And a lot of my friends lived on Main, white friends lived on Main Street. Monticello being what it was, I could walk to school and back. It was only 10 blocks, but I lived sort of on the other side of the track, so to speak. And so there was less time for us to spend together. Did anyone discourage you from playing with the little, the, the black children? Not at that point. Um, I, I wrote about this in Damaged Heritage that I was really shocked that no one tried to interfere with our playing together when, uh, when I was that young. And I sort of projected what the response would have been 20 years later. If, if, I had, if the same relationship existed 20 years later, there, it would have been a major issue in that community. Mm. And I concluded, I've concluded over time that the neighbor, the white neighborhood knew that institutionalization would end that relationship. And it did. I mean, it definitely did. The only time I ever saw those, my friends again, really, um, there was a black Boy Scout troop and a white Boy Scout troop. And we were asked to work together in terms of delivering circulars in our part of town. And uh, that was the first and last time I saw them again. You write in, in your book, Damaged Heritage, I want to put that word out there, the name out there, because people should Thank read you. it, that you, quote, never felt as white as my closest friend. What is that feeling white? What is feeling white? It's like if, if I were a black man, I think I would know what it is to feel black. But what is it to feel white? And, and, and how did you know that at such a young age? Well, bear in, bear in mind that, you know, the, the white is or the obverse of the, of the black. And so you define many ways in environment. I, is you define yourself in some cases against, against African-American. If, I mean, that's, there's, there's that aspect of it. And I guess, you know, part of it was advantage because I didn't have a father, and most of my friends had fathers, and um, um, and we didn't live in the best part of town. And I mean, at one point, uh, a friend of mine was planning to; his family was thinking about moving to a different place in Monticello. I said, "Well, why don't you move down close to Sheldon?" Oh no, we would never move down there. It's too close to where Blankety Blank lived, and so. I think privilege had a lot to do with it. Um, 
And the other thing is that I didn't, I don't know why, but I really didn't have stories about, I mean, my, my stories about African-Americans were all positive. I mean, they, they, my friends that brought me in, my black friends that brought me into that, into their, and we, into their world. And we, we played together and it, it was all positive. Did you and, ever go to uh, their homes? Did they ever go to your home? No, no. That, both of us knew the, that we weren't to do that. If we had to go to the bathroom, we would go to our separate places. And, and if we were to, you know, if we were to, if we got hungry to eat, we would go separately. There was, and it, we all, we intuitively knew that. Even at that age, we intuitively knew it. And so you never and talked that, about it. You never said why that was. It just was known. It was just known. It was just known. So you left yeah. Arkansas to study at Harvard. And then you returned to where you grew up to teach at a black high school, Drew High School. Why right. did you return? The civil rights movement really did have an effect on me. But I think it had an effect on a lot of people, a lot of white children and, and, and uh, college folks at that time. Because um, Freedom Summer happened in, in the summer of 1964. I was at Harvard studying under um, Rollo May, who was a, quite a theorist, and I, I liked his work. But I couldn't keep my mind on what was going on, particularly in Mississippi, because Northern students had descended on Mississippi that summer. In the area, the local, the area that was particularly pinpointed where they wanted to spend their focus, was Northwest Mississippi, which is known as the Delta. And the Delta in Mississippi is directly across the Big Muddy or Mississippi from where I grew up. And, and so to some extent, I couldn't help but think and realize what was happening. And so my, the fall of my junior year at Harvard, I left and for the next three and a half years, I dissected what I considered what was racial history, racial experience of the South. And that was a fundamental change for me. I mean, when I left my junior year at Harvard, came home, I call it home, I was a, I was a student and I had a lot of, let's say, interrogatory, interrogatory questions about all kinds of things. And if someone had asked me about your views about race, I would have probably, you know, given them 15 reasons of all the or questions about things that needed to be evaluated and all this kind of stuff. Three and a half years later, I was different. I was codified. I had, I took positions that were diametrically opposed to my family. And I call the experience, that kind of experience, north toward home in the book. Being in New York gave me anonymity and the ability to analyze what had happened. During the time, the three and a half years, I would work a while. I would go to school for a while. Uh, I'd go to the University of Arkansas. And I wrote while I was there. But it had a transformational effect on me. As soon as I graduated, I came to New York. You know, within an, a year, 18 months, uh, I was back 
in the Delta because King had died and I felt that I owed him an obligation to, to do something. And he had done so much that I just don't think that he, and so much that, he, that white community should have embraced and didn't embrace. And we wouldn't be facing the issues we're facing now if they had. I decided I would do something meaningful or I thought was meaningful. And I came back and I taught and drew school. A black high school. It was the all African-American public school before integration. I wanted to work in that environment. The environment was quickly going to disappear. Because of integration right? and busing. Actually, it wasn't integration, though. As I've said in yeah. there, at least in Monticello, it was an absorption. Yeah. Because the school that I taught, we... Uh, they just it 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 no longer existed. We the students and my, and Drew had to accept the moniker and the school colors and all of that of the white school, and the black school was completely eliminated. So the tradition so it never existed. Yeah, it's a tradition of Drew it, as though it had never existed. Yeah, yeah. And, and high school culture is important. At, at that age. You know the football Absolutely. team and the mascot and the. Yeah. And it was all destroyed. During this time, you were attacked by what you describe as Peckerwoods. Why, right. were, why were you attacked? And what are Peckerwoods? <laughs> well, it, it's, um, it's really a defined term. I mean, it's not... Some people take it that when that I'm demeaning them uh, by using the term Peckerwoods. But if you go, you know, if you, you go to the, the Mississippi... Delta, Arkansas, or Mississippi, and you use the term peckerwood, it's uh, it's different than, I mean, people sort of think, well, you're talking about rednecks or something like that. Actually, peckerwoods are the, the ones that enforce uh, the, the racial protocols that exist within these smaller communities. Um, I had actually, you know, I, by teaching at the school and voicing some concerns I had about what was happening in the town. And that's, I had just violated the, the protocols. They had a responsibility or felt they had a responsibility to teach me a lesson. Uh, and they tried. And um, for my own benefit, accidentally, um, it didn't succeed. How, how did it, why didn't it succeed? How were you saved from a serious beating? There was someone who lived on Shelton Street when we were growing up. He was my brother's age. And he became sort of a, a the extra plate at the table. And he spent a lot of time with us and all that. He was very close to my mother. And he was close to my brother. And he was, I thought he was reasonably close to me. But anyway, he asked me to go out to a corral with him, I, I would see him occasionally when I was teaching at um, through school. He would come by, and we would go riding around or whatever. I, I, I didn't see him very much, but he would come by and occasionally see me. I'll come by and get you tomorrow night. We'll go to um, they're breaking horses out at this corral. Seemed like it was all right. I said, "All right, I'll go with you." So. Um, I went with him, and there were 
number of, I recognized the number of pecker woods as I went into the corral and they weren't, and there was no breaking of, of horses. Sort of the leader of the pack who they had been drinking quite a bit. And he started attacking me about, you, you know, was a white, what is a white person educating the N words and he had trouble with my hair and that sort of thing. So they started to close around me and my, my so-called friend had just backed away and it was obviously his responsibility to get me there. And then out of nowhere, as though it was a guardian angel or whatever, but out of nowhere, this um, very large person who had played center for the Denver Broncos and he was a local football hero. He had finished his athletic career by that time, but no one wanted to mess with him, that's for sure. I, and this corral was fairly, it was like four or five miles outside of Monticello. And somehow he had made his way out there and he got himself between me and those who were going to attack me. And I'll remember these words like, you know, they're a mantra with me. He said, this is not going to happen. He told me to leave the corral, which I did. And then coincidentally, as I got outside, there was another friend. Now, I wasn't close to this football player. I, just, I mean, I knew who he was. He knew who I was. But I wasn't close to him. And then, but, but my other friend drove up and, and I said, I, you know, I'd like you to take me home. So he took me home. And what had happened is this so-called friend who sort of set me up, he was known to be a big mouth. And so he had told a few people what was going to go, what was going to go down that night. So that's how this football player heard about it and defended me. And my other friend had heard about it and came. They were a little late for the party, but they made it in time to save me. Maybe in the nick of time? That that must have been enormously scary. I still look back on it. You know, I know what had happened. I mean, the, the Pecker Woods were basically responsible to teach you, for teaching me a lesson. And that was a danger that I faced by teaching in the African-American school. And um, I you, just got caught in the wrong but you, you, place you, at the wrong time. You knew at that time that there were white freedom marchers that had been killed. Yes. For doing something, you know, as bad as what you were doing. Right. Yeah. I mean, you must have felt yeah. betrayed, too, by this um, someone so who had friend. been in, at your, at your oh, yes. table. Definitely. Right. Definitely. Definitely. So they had showed up to not break horses, but to break Chester. Mm. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think you could say that the racial ha uh, hatred that led to your possible beating was a minor reflection of that American style of hating that flared up in Phillips County at the end of 1919. And I think we're at the time where we can talk about what happened. And of course, we can't you can't tell the whole story, but I, I recommend people going to Damaged Heritage uh, and any number of other history books which are on the on the laps of god on the laps of god i mean there's and the Ida wells one right bob right. whitaker right bob so whitaker. so in late september and into october of 1919 well over and again the number is not clear but we know that well over 100 black americans 
were murdered in Phillips County, Arkansas, and in the area near to where you grew up. Can can you give us an idea, a feeling for what that event was, how it started, and how the military yeah. got involved? And At the end of World War One, black veterans made their way back to the United States. And many of them had been heroes. Um, and they had obviously fought for their country and they expected when they got back to the shores of the United States that they would be treated better and with more equity than when they had left. But then whites throughout the country rose up to say that was not going to happen. There were outbreaks all over this country from Arizona to the Northeast and all states in between. I mean, it was in many uh, national and international journalists called it a race war uh, in the United States. This was happening all over. And of course, if that was going to be happening all over the country, there would be clearly be outbreaks around that time in, um, along the Mississippi River Delta. And in this case, it happened on the Arkansas side. Now, bear in mind at that time, cotton prices were as high as they had ever been. The black sharecroppers who had been veterans came back with an ambition to access the very high cotton prices. That, and, and they felt after one harvest, after World War I, they had felt that they were unfairly treated by the white planters in Phillips County, especially in Phillips County is right on the Mississippi River. It, it has incredibly rich soil, and it's just perfect for, or was, for cotton harvesting. It was choice land. Now, share, the way in which sharecropping worked in places like Phillips County, a sharecropper would grow the crop, take the crop to the white planter, and they would agree on a price. And the proceeds from that arrangement would then go toward the payment of goods that had been taken from the plantation's commissary. And because commissary would have an open tab for various sharecroppers that would come in and, and would need supplies for their families and that sort of thing. Usually what would happen is that the sharecropper after paying, after paying off the commissary would still owe a little something. And as long as you owed a little something, you were tied to the land. With high cotton prices, if, if they, could, they could squeeze out enough to pay off the entirety of their bill, then they would be free to actually be their own farmers, maybe get land and all that. But they could never do that. Not really. They couldn't. They hadn't been able to. So, but with cotton prices being at that level, they felt that they could finally pay off the commissary. In fact, because of the way they had been treated, the sharecroppers had hired an attorney out of Little Rock to sue the white planters and to exercise to negotiate uh, the best possible deals for the sharecroppers. 
And so there was this litigious environment. So they wanted to form a union and uh, are a part to be part of a union. A veteran had come back named Robert Hill who had set up um, the union, Progressive Farmers and Household Union. And it was set up out of actually Drew County, my county, uh, where I'd grown up. Sharecroppers in Phillips County wanted to set up what was known as Hoop Spur Lodge of that of the Progressive Farmers and Household Union. And they, they met on the evening of September the 30th, 1919, to finalize arrangements of setting up this lodge. Well, at around 11 o'clock, and this, this, was at the, this was at the Hoop Spur Church. So yeah. it was at a Aaron church. Hoop Spur Church, with, that's where they're meeting, where the African-American sharecroppers and families are meeting. There were about 100 people in the Hoop Spur Church. And then the deputy sheriff of Phillips County and the uh, security official from the Missouri Pacific Railroad arrive at the church. They step out of their the Model T, and they start firing into the church. Unbeknownst to them, the this, the lodge or the union had hired guards to try to, to stop any interlopers. And so the guards fired on um, the deputy sheriff and the security agent. Security agent was killed. The um, deputy sheriff was hit in the knee. Um, they were African-American guards. African-American guards. Who had probably been in the so, military. Yeah, probably. I yeah. guess they had. And so they, they made, deputy sheriff makes it back to county seat, tells the sheriff that, you know, there's a black insurrection going on. And there had been rumors all around the county that that the union organizers had a list of 21 names of white planters that the union would had plans to kill the 21. There's no proof of any of that, but that was one, that was some of, that was a rumor. And it sort of built in legitimacy for what happened next. The, the sheriff deputizes a large number of white men who then go back out to Hoopspur following morning and they start killing African-Americans and they kill between 15 and 20. But there are two whites who are killed. But I think I think they were both killed by friendly fire. But uh, you know, no one will ever know. But I have my reasons for believing it. The sheriff then calls the governor and says, "You know, we've got whites being killed by African Americans. There are a lot of veterans. We understand they're massing an attack against white people here. You've got to do something. Would you?" please send over the federal troops that are uh, now at Camp Pike outside of Little Rock and um, to protect us, protect whites in Phillips County. The governor calls the War Department of Woodrow Wilson. Wilson, as you know, was a, quite a racist and his administration was quite racist. They said, sure, we'll send them right over. There were 500 federal troops that boarded a train, went to the hub in McGee, came back up through to Phillips County the following morning. They arrive and they, they're equipped with machine guns. We do know that at least 60 to 80 African-Americans were killed. 
and um, but it may have been more. Who knows? To restore order, as they as they put it. And if you do all of the additions with, you know, let's where we we're using that number, it came from a study that the FBI and the Justice Department did. Uh, within two days, FBI and Justice Department sent representatives to Phillips County to investigate this massacre. And they came back with those numbers. And um, But they could have been on the light side. That's the story of what... Right. And, and um, as far as we know, there were maybe five or six whites uh, that were killed. It was confirmed. Five died. Um, the security officer died the first night from Missouri Pacific. There was one federal corporal, and then there were three other um, whites um, who were killed during the course of about two to three days. Do yeah. we know the names of? The, yeah, they, they know the names of the whites, but, no, but they, not the names of the. We of don't the know black the, the names of the black people that were killed. Some of them. Yeah, some of them we know, but there's and they're you know, pictures of them, people have taken of, of some of them who were killed. But um, uh, And there but was, you said, that. there was a killing field. There was an actual killing field. There were several killing fields. Mostly um, in that area, and there's an area just north of Elaine, which is a very, uh, they're cotton fields. And... Um, that's where a large number, and but there were a lot of sharecropper shacks that were along, were along the public roads, which don't exist anymore. The shacks aren't there. Yeah. They've been turned into uh, tillable land. So that was the area where most of the killing happened. But it happened elsewhere, too. I mean, in northwest of Elaine, there were some coppices where people could hide in woods and bushes and that sort of thing. And we do know that there were a large number of African-Americans killed in that area, mainly through by the use of the machine gun. This uh, story is told in detail in your book, Damaged Heritage. Um, the follow-up to the story is that after all of this was done, all of these African-American citizens were killed uh, by the military mostly, that they were then accused uh, and and there's a large story that of of their being accused of mobs coming after them, a deal being made uh, so that they their, their trial would be a kangaroo trial in which they would be eventually executed, and then there's a whole story of the lawyer, um, uh, Scipio uh, Africanus Jones. Right, his story is an amazing story. It would make its sure. own book, the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, was was um, this whole thing established the Fourteenth Amendment of having teeth, and that's a whole part of the story that I'm afraid we don't have time to get to. But I recommend. Yeah, I'm sorry if I went too long on. That. No, it's all right. I do want to get. I do want to get to the other part of the story of Sheila L. Walker. This is Bar Crawl Radio, and we are talking with J. Chester Johnson, poet, essayist, translator of the Psalms for the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, and grandson of Lonnie, who participated in the Elaine Race Riots of 1919. A close friend of yours died recently, uh, Sheila Walker. 
Uh, members of her family had been killed by their white neighbors in the Elaine race riots. Could you read for us what Sheila Walker wrote in the foreword to your book, Damaged Heritage? Certainly. Maybe I should make a correction. There were two of uh, her granduncles were um, severely wounded. They were one was shot in the face by a Missouri Pacific Railroad security officer, and then, and then a number of people attacked the other great uncle, and they were shot numerous times. But they ultimately survived. She didn't lose any. She didn't lose anyone, but she had. Uh, so these are the words of uh, part of the uh, foreword that she wrote. Quote. The capacity to personally forgive Chester's grandfather became easy. I know that all humans are born with inherent goodness, which can often be overshadowed by an impressive society that teaches us hate. The result, we all make mistakes and some of us do very bad things. If we are lucky and blessed, we get the opportunity to make an honest account of the hurt surrounding us and then men fences. Thank you. Thank you for reading that. Can uh, you uh, tell us about your friend, Sheila L. Walker, and how you two met? Yeah, it was, uh, it's been one of the great um, friendships I've ever had. And um, she's just a phenomenal person. We had both been working toward the Elaine massacre from, from different perspectives, obviously. She was, in, in, in terms of, we didn't know that we were working independently. The author of the book, On the Lapse of Gods, had had contact with both of us. Um, I had asked him for my article that I mentioned earlier that, I, that was published in 2013. I had asked Bob Whitaker a number of questions because I want him to clarify. On the Lapse of Gods focuses in part on Sheila's family, the Giles family, and what happened to them during the massacre. Because in addition to the injury that two of her great uncles experienced, one of the great uncles becomes part of the suit called Moore versus Dempsey. He, it's, it, he became sort of a famous figure in all of this. But she wanted to know more about it. And she wanted to, it was something that was important to her family. And she had a grandmother who used to try to tell the story, Annie. And she, because of her emotional and you know, these events that happened to her when she was a teenager, Annie couldn't finish telling them, and she would just break down and not be able to finish. And, and she couldn't tell her personal episodes, you know, post-traumatic stress. So Sheila was trying to find as much as she could. And Bob asked each of us, said, would ask me, would you mind talking, spending some time with an African-American woman whose family was involved? And he asked Sheila the same, knowing that Lonnie had participated. And we had a long telephone conversation, two hours. And then we decided to meet at her son's home in Boston. And um, 
when we first met each other, we rather than just shaking hands or whatever, we actually embraced. And um, Sheila and I just we were committed to this friendship. We and and even without articulating it, we knew that we wanted to be the antithesis of what happened between blacks and whites and or certainly the whites on we we didn't want we wanted to do something that was in juxtaposition and even without talking about it we we just became fast friends and finally and our respective spouses and children became part of this and for 7 years we've been working on racial reconciliation and um and friendship um and She's she was um, a major figure in, in in my life, and I will miss her terribly. She has, um, and she had a view toward, you know, she is. I read here. Her view toward Lonnie was that he was a good person. <laughs> that that Chester, you could not have loved him the way that you did, if he wasn't a good person. <laughs> she had this mantra that she used that we're we're born good but bad circumstances make good people do bad things and that was her that was her that's how she came and i i have yet to really uh, forgive lonnie and in fact there was a symposium held in 2004 where she spoke we i spoke every number and she got up and said i have forgiven lonnie more than chester had and she toward the end of her life she would really she became irritated with me mm. she said that you know your inability to to forgive lonnie does not show the best side of who you are and why can't you and it caused it caused me to do a lot of soul searching and what i really found out is that lonnie for me became the face of racism and he became more than just the grandfather or even the the grandfather who participated in this he became a face of racism and it was hard for me to get over that and um but um she didn't mince any words. She was very disappointed that I never got to a point where I could, I could for, forgive him, in, uh, in the way that she forgave him. I mean, she truly forgave him. And um, and if uh, if he had walked into a room, uh, she would have gotten up and hugged him right then. I mean, it, you know, she was just like that. Yeah. Um... A big part of the story of Damage Heritage, and I guess the theme of it is, and you've mentioned it a number of times, the word reconciliation. I mean, use other words, forgiveness, coherence. I don't know if I'm saying this right, agape love. Uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, trust in trust of the other. I mean, use those terms throughout the book. Can you talk about that? Um, even though you're not maybe ready to forgive and embrace your a beloved grandfather, you do talk about 
agape love. T tell us about that. Well, I, I talk about it also in the context of, of you know, the, I, I lay out what I consider the structure of racism and what creates the continuity, certainly against black Americans, of 400 years. What do we have that can be done? And I'd like to answer that in that context of a will. Racism is driven, in my opinion, at least in the American context, certainly toward black Americans, derives first from damaged heritage. And that's the name of the book, obviously. And damaged heritage is an essential part of American white racism. It consists of evidence that's passed on from generation to generation of ingrained prejudicial customs and traditions that are sometimes codified into law. It's, it's combined or has been combined historically with not infrequent, gratuitous, and, and sometimes severe repression and violence by American whites against African Americans. But I had this feeling, I have this view that that could not have been done in the absence of excessive veneration of ancestors, the past, tradition, which Webster calls filial pietism. I think that I actually believe that those who committed all that they did against blacks knew that they were doing it. And what gave them an excuse was this continual venera excessive veneration of ancestors, the past and tradition, Webster called filial pietism. And the antithesis of that is, and I've discussed this in the book, is the genuinely human. And this is what Sheila and I always fought for. And together, we, I mean, our relationship was based on the genuinely human. And that is, and the genuinely human is not those characteristics that I identified in damaged heritage, such as customs, traditions, skin color, accents, history, all of that. It's much deeper. It's more fundamental. It's instinctual as it works and wills connections to understand, to empathize, to reconcile, to love, co-inhere, or agape love, um, and to step into another's shoes and be that person. I'll be arguing that to, la to my last day, that, that two things. One is that was a fundamental characteristic of the relationship that Sheila and I had. And it is a fun, the use of the, of the genuinely human is what will rest on the end of racism. It, that is what will create an environment that puts an end to racism. We just, we're still far removed from being there. But, um, and so I'm a great proponent of this allyship. Whites and blacks, as 
individuals experiencing the this the genuinely human as I described it, and that was the core of our of our relationship. Damaged heritage ends with the following: We Americans are not born with racism. It is not who we are. Rather, it is a trait we absorb as a condition of what we learn and have to unlearn if we are to free ourselves from this evil. J. Chester Johnson, it has been an honor and a pleasure to have this hour to talk with you about this important part of the history of our country. It's just been an honor and a pleasure and a, you know, uh, an anguish to, to, to spend this hour with you, with, with the way we are in this country. And, well, thank and, you um, so much for having me. Thank you for sharing your ideas with us and, and your feelings, d- deeply felt feelings. This is Bar Crawl Radio Podcast. We usually have these conversations at our neighborhood bars, and we will do so again. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact us at our website, barcrawlradio.com, or email us at barcrawlradio.com at gmail.com. And you can stick around to hear J. Chester Johnson's reading his poem on dedicating the Elaine Massacre Memorial. This poem was written, it's an original poem written specifically for the dedication of the uh, memorial the first physical memorial for the Elaine Race Massacre. I read it on the centennial day of September the 29th, 2019. On dedicating the Elaine Massacre Memorial. They will end. All of them will end. Words to flare a conflagration. They will end, all of them will end. The plots setting hue against hue, yes, they will end, but time and the river shall never end. For they begin to begin again and over again as time and the river wash through the land and over its dreams, schemes, and lauded and unlauded past. We've told our stories here while others listen, thinking mainly of their own, of those who died killing, or of those who found no finding of an escape from onslaught upon onslaught. Now we gaze on the memorial, which tells of days that went unclaimed, which tells things a hundred years of the Elaine Race Massacre did not care to hear. That all history is a struggle between what we must end and what we must begin. As time and the river ever flow between now and then and delay for neither those we honor here nor those who have or will come here of time and the river, beckoning no escape, leaves no choice. So we shall no longer wait for more light that we may better see light. 
nor wait for other dreams that we may better inspire dreams. 